you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the last chapter of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. And as I have said a number of times, this is our last sermon in this series through the book of Ephesians that we began back in in February, the end of February. Uh, And in that first sermon, we did say that the book of Ephesians is like cheesecake. It's simple and yet rich and powerful. And so I hope you can stick around for our cheesecake feast afterwards, celebrating the simplicity and the richness of this letter. But before that, before we get to the cheesecake, uh, we're going to, our task in this moment is to remember where we have been in this book, to kind of go back through and remember what God has been teaching us in the book as a whole, and then to look at the final four verses of this book and wrap it up. Uh, The uniqueness of the Christian faith and of the gospel that we proclaim is not in the questions that they pose, but rather in the answers that they give. The uniqueness of Christianity is not in the questions that we pose, but in the answers that we give. That we give. And what I mean by that is that the, the questions that arise in the, in the heart of someone who is or who becomes a follower of Jesus are not unique because the core questions of everyone's life is the same. We're all asking the same questions. But it's the answers that we find in Christ and the answers that we find in the scriptures and in the truth of the gospel that are unparalleled, that are unmatched by any other, question, any other answers provided in this world. And as we take our time to look back over the book of Ephesians, I want us to ask some, some key questions, key questions that everyone faces in life and that we often come back to. And, and in, asking, in looking at those questions, I want us to see how Ephesians offers us soul-satisfying answers. Uh, We've often said that Ephesians can be summarized like this. God in Christ has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity and walk in a new way. That's our summary of the book of Ephesians. God has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity and walk in a new way. And those three realities, a new people, a new unity, and a new walk, they outline the book of Ephesians for us. But they do a lot more than that. And so today I want us to reframe that summary as a way to answer three key questions of life that we all face. This is what they are. Who am I? Where do I belong? And why am I here? Who am I? Where do I belong? And why am I here? Who am I is a question of identity. Where do I belong? We'll see is a question of community. And why am I here is a question of purpose. And I think those questions are ones that arise in every human heart and that Ephesians can answer for us. However, I won't pretend that that we can completely solve all the struggles of our hearts, not because the scriptures don't provide true and satisfying answers, but simply because of the fallenness of the world and the weakness of our own souls. But To summarize Tim Keller, every human being is is in fact looking at the the same information as we study the world and as we try to understand ourselves and as we try to understand uh, who we are and and where we belong and why we are here. We're all looking at the same information, but it's Christianity that offers the best answers to all of the questions that we are asking, the most coherent and the truest answers. 
And so Ephesians, we could say, is a bit of a, an answer key to all of these questions that we're asking. And the first question we're faced with is, who am I? Who am I? Again, it's a question about identity. This is the week of Thanksgiving, which is one of the busiest travel seasons of the year. And if you happen to be traveling by plane to go somewhere, when you get to the airport, you're going to need something. You're going to need an ID. You're going to need some identification. And what are the kinds of things, as you think about an ID, like a driver's license, what are the kinds of things that, that are on that ID that are meant to separate you from all the 8 billion other people in this world? Well, of course, right on the front there is a picture of your face. Your face sets you apart from everyone else. It'll have your name on it. It'll have your full name, your, your first, your middle, and your last name, assuming that you have all three of those. It's going to list things like your height and your, your eye color. If you have a social security number, it's going to have that on there. And taken all together, you put all these things together, that, that information identifies you as you and not as someone else. But these external things actually have very little to do with who we really are, don't they? A driver's license doesn't tell the story of your life and of all the things that have, have shaped you and made you who you are. It doesn't explain your hopes and your dreams for the future, not to mention the hopes and the dreams of, of your past that either came true or that you gave up on. It doesn't describe the things that you love or the things that you hate the ways that you're gifted and the ways that you always seem to struggle. It doesn't tell you who you really are, but even if it, if it did, would you or I be able to identify uh, one another? Sometimes we can be the person who actually knows the answer to all those things that I just talked about, the one who experiences those things every day. And still, at the end of the day, we say, who am I? We don't even know ourselves. As Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians, it's clear that he's writing to Christians, to those who have turned from sin and trusted in Jesus. And for the Christian, the answer of who each one of us is, is found through what God has done. So who we are is found in what God has done. Who we are is found in what God has done. Now, we don't have time to go back through all that God has done for us in Christ. That's, that's why we did a series through the book of Ephesians and took those things on, especially in the early days of our study. But let's just kind of remembering this Trinity, let, let's remember the, the Trinitarian call to worship that Paul begins with in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. And there he invites us to look into the past and into the present and into the future and to see the salvation that God has accomplished for the Christian. We said he calls us to praise the Father because of his eternal purposes in saving us. To praise the Father and the Son for the riches of their grace lavished upon us. To praise the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for the equal inheritance they have planned and guaranteed for us. And all of this has happened in Christ, Paul says. The Christian could answer the question, who am I, with the words, I am in Christ. That's who I am. And while each of us are individuals created in the image of God, unique and beautiful because of God's love for us, there's also a sense in which the ID card of everyone who is a Christian is exactly the same. And it doesn't have our picture on it, and it doesn't have our accomplishments listed. It has the picture and the credentials of Jesus. 
Who am I? I am in Christ. And who Christ is, is who I am through faith. This comes out in, in chapter 2 as, as Paul first focuses not on who we are in Christ, but on who we were apart from Christ. You'll remember that he, he invites us to remember who we once were and how we once walked, to remember that across our ID and the ID of everyone outside of Christ were written the words dead, enslaved, and condemned. That's who we were, dead in our trespasses and sins, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and condemned to eternal punishment. But remember, the gospel message is not simply that you are more sinful than you ever thought possible, but also that you are more loved than you could ever dream. And once again, the love of God in Christ defines us. Who we are is found in what God has done. And what has God done? Mark already read it, but it doesn't hurt to read Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Who are you, Christian? You are a sinner who has been wonderfully saved by God's grace. Sandwiched between this section in Ephesians 2 and the call to praise that we looked at in chapter 1 is a, a prayer, and it's a prayer for knowledge, a prayer that for, for there to be an ever-growing understanding in the follower of Jesus of who God is and of what he has done for us in Christ. Because the surprising thing is that I think we could go back to chapters 1 and 2 and we could study them in the exact same way that we did so many months ago, and we would still find that there are things that we need to know about who we are through what Christ has done. There's still depths that we can go into in those verses. We are quick to forget who we are. It's so easy to be like young Simba in The Lion King. You remember him wandering through the wastelands, eating bugs, forgetting that he was a child of the king. We do the same as God's children, and sometimes we need someone like Paul through the Holy Spirit to come and hit us on the proverbial head so that we look in the mirror of the Scriptures and see who we truly are. So who are you, Christian? Who you are is defined by what God has done, and he has placed you in Christ so that you might know the love of the Father, the righteousness of the Son, and the power of the Spirit. But interestingly, who we are who we are as those who are in Christ also helps us answer that second key question, which is, where do we belong? Where do we belong? Which I'm framing as a question of community. You know, we're all trying to fit in somewhere. If you're in elementary school or middle school or high school, you know that you're trying to find a group of people who accept you and, and who welcome you. But if you're an adult, you know that you're still trying to find a group of people that accept you and, 
and welcome you and love you. We're all looking for a place to belong. And throughout life, we are offered places and communities to belong. It could be a community of fans of a particular sport or, or team. It could be a member of a political party or maybe those who love a, a, a particular musician or a band. It could be that we identify with our race or our ethnicity or our gender or our social status and we find belonging in, in those places. But what if there was a community that brought unity across all of these different groups? What, what if there was a community, a, a place where, where UK and UofL fans could be together? Republicans and Democrats could come together, where, where Swifties and people who don't like Taylor Swift at all could be united, where there are people from every race and ethnicity and gender and social class gathered together. That's the kind of unity that's been held out to us in our culture. It's been held out throughout history, some utopian dream, but it's not a dream. It's found in Christ and for all those who are in Christ. Paul knew about division, even amongst God's people. You remember his ministry was uniquely to the Gentiles. That was the mystery of the gospel he was proclaiming, that, that those who were not Jews and, and who the Jewish Christians were hesitant to welcome were actually welcomed. He helps us see in the beginning of Ephesians 2.11 that while the Gentiles had been far away from God, they were brought near through the blood of Jesus. But the further reality is that, that not only were the, the Gentiles brought near by the blood of Jesus, but the Jewish people were also being brought near by the blood of Jesus. And so Jew and Gentile were all in Christ, and therefore they were in community with one another, whether they wanted to be in community with one another or not. It's like if you ever go on one of those rides like the Tilt-A-Whirl, and if you don't want to sit really close to the person next to you, at some point you don't have a choice because gravity takes over, or centrifugal force, or whatever you call it, and you're sitting really close to the person that's next to you. I think there's moments in life also when a diverse group of people suddenly come together in a way they otherwise would not have, when the walls that divide them fall down, if only for a moment. I think that's part of the draw of going to a, a live sporting event like the World Cup, or, or going to a concert. You could watch it on television, right? You could listen to the album on your headphones, but being in a place with thousands of people who are fans of this thing that you love creates this sense of community and this sense of oneness that we're made for, that God has made us for. This longing for community is why in a few days we're going to travel to faraway places and we're going to spend a lot of time cooking turkeys because our hearts are made to be united to others, and Thanksgiving offers this opportunity, this, this moment to do just that. It's why holidays are, are joyful and why holidays are often so difficult after someone who has been a part of our community is no longer with us. And yet all of these communities and these events and these holidays, they're all just an echo. They're just an echo of, of what God has made us for which is fellowship with him and fellowship with all of his true children. What we're longing for in, is this, this community of faith that's found only in Christ. And it's only in Jesus that all the walls that divide us can truly fall down. 
And so Paul helps us see that where we belong is found in Christ and in his gathered people, the church. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Christ, we are all citizens of God's kingdom. In Christ, we are members of God's family. In Christ, we are stones in God's temple where he himself dwells. Where do I belong? Ultimately, you belong in Christ and with everyone else who is in Christ. I think that begs the question then, church, are we a place that allows every external reason for division to fade so that we can reflect the supernatural unity that God has accomplished by placing us in Christ through repentance and faith? Are we finding our deepest belonging in some other identity such that we're pushing true children of God away instead of welcoming them in? Are we reflecting in our love for one another that where we ultimately belong is in Christ and with everyone who is in him. Who are you? You are one who is in Christ, your identity being defined by what God has done. And where do you belong? You belong in the community of God's people where all who are in Christ are welcomed in freely. And that leads to this third question, why am I here? Why am I here? It's a question of purpose. When the noise of life dies down, I think sometimes in our souls we can have concerns like, what am I supposed to be doing? Or what am I doing with my life? We can sense some, in some way some feeling of insignificance of, of who we are and of what we might be contributing to society. We want to know our, our purpose. Why are we here? And Paul offers a surprising answer. If we're in Christ and we're a part of his covenant community, then our purpose on this earth is to walk. <laughs> it's to walk. It sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? What's your purpose in life? It's to walk. <laughs> of course, the kind of walking that we're called to do is anything but simple. It's more like the kind of walking that an Olympic speed walker does than a, a toddler's waddle. It's a little complicated. But the way that, that God is changing the world is through the walk of the church. And not only that, but walking in Christ is actually practice for living in the eternal kingdom that is coming. We've said that the call to walk worthy in chapter 4, verse 1, is a call to walk in unity and in holiness. In unity and in holiness. And in 4, 1 through 16, we see that who we are in Christ, make up, in Christ makes up the body of Christ, and we are to be eager to maintain that unity. In fact, everyone who is in Christ has been given gifts by the resurrected Christ so that we can use them to build up the body of Christ. Each of us, like, like each part of the body, is, is called to use the gifts we've been given to promote the unity of the church. That's why you're here. Why am I here? You are here to walk in unity and show forth this unity that God has accomplished. 
and you're here, Ephesians 4.17, to no longer walk in the ways of those who are far from Christ, the ways that we used to walk in. We're to put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and put on the new self who is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This means chapter 5, verse 2, that we walk in love towards those who are outside the, who are in the church. And chapter 5, verse 8, we are to walk as children of light towards a world that is filled with those who are still trapped in the darkness of sin. Boy, I've loved those commands. Elaine and Lena might get a little tired of me saying it to them, but when I drop them off for school, I think I shared what a great way to part, but it's a great way to send each other out. Walk in love. Walk in the light. That's what God's calling us to do. It's a beautiful thing to, to walk, and to also walk in wisdom. Chapter 5, verse 15, being filled with and, and controlled by the Spirit. And walking in the Spirit means that, that we know how to submit to one another, and we know how to use God-given authority in humble and loving ways. Walking in the Spirit means that our, our marriages, it means that our parenting, it means that our service and our work all model the love and submission of Christ that has been perfectly modeled for us. The sign that this kind of walking is a little bit more revolutionary than we might think is found in the strength of opposition that comes against us. Remember Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 tells us that the devil and all the powers of darkness are seeking to do one simple thing. They want to stop us from walking and they want to cause us to fall down. But by God's grace, clothed in his armor, we're able to stand firm against all the schemes of the devil and to keep walking. Christian, why are you here? What's your purpose? You're here to walk. But to walk in such a new way, a way so different from how you used to walk that it shows forth the glory of God and displays and adorns the gospel that we proclaim. Church, Together, we are to walk in this way, showing forth the unity and the holiness that shines like a city on a hill. Again, the trouble with walking is that it feels so insignificant that just walking each day in, in holiness and unity feels like we're not doing anything. But it's not insignificant, and it's not a small thing. Don't despise the faithful, everyday, spirit-empowered walking that we are called to do. Paul himself was, he was simply seeking to walk in faithfulness. And he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus and, and to us, as it were, so that we might know who we are, we might know where we belong, and we might know why we are here. Listen to how he closes his letter in Ephesians 6, verses 21 to 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. We've talked about Tychicus before. It's likely that Tychicus was the scribe for this letter, that he was the one writing down uh, Paul's words as he spoke them out loud. But it's, it's also likely that Paul picked up the pen to physically write these final words. 
Uh, we see this in other epistles, that this would serve to authenticate the letter as truly from him as it would be written in, in his distinct handwriting. Uh, Tychicus would also have served as a witness to the authenticity of this letter. He was a known companion, a known fellow worker of Paul, so the church would know that this letter was from Paul when it arrived in the hands of, of Tychicus. He may even have memorized the contents of this letter on his trip from Rome to Ephesus so that he could recite the contents of it to the church from memory and emphasize its different points as Paul would have done if he could have been there in person. Uh, Paul also says that Tychicus was sent to provide all of the details of how Paul was doing so that they might be encouraged and, and comforted. And that, in fact, is, is really helpful. It probably explains why Paul doesn't spend a lot of time delineating the details of his imprisonment. He knew that Tychicus was going to come, and Tychicus would give them all that information. He didn't need to write that down. There's a closing prayer then in verses 23 and 24, and in that that closing blessing and prayer, Paul includes a wish for peace, love, faith, and grace, that all of those things would come to the Ephesians, all through the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are themes we've seen throughout the letter. He prays that, that they would know the peace that Christ has purchased for us by his blood, having made peace through the cross. He prays that they would be filled with, with love, likely the love of God that they had come to know, which would lead them into love for all the brothers and sisters without any distinction. He prays for faith, which we saw was a key way to fight the lies and the schemes of Satan. They needed to be armed with, with faith and trust in Christ or they would fall. And he prays for grace, that they would know the grace that had saved them and the grace that would sustain them. These are things we all need, aren't they? Peace, love, faith, grace. It's an individual blessing, but it's also more of a corporate bless blessing. It may be driving home the unity that is a theme of this book, that we all need these things together. The letter ends with an interesting word. It's the word incorruptible. It could be a description of the kind of un faltering love that we are to have for Christ, which is how the ESV translates it. But it could actually be more general. Uh, Bao translates it like this, our Lord Jesus Christ who dwells in incorruptibility. So it's a description of who Christ is. He dwells in incorruptibility. And in that more general sense, we're pointed towards actually the final hope of eternal life. This is how Bao explains it. The this connects directly to the central message of Ephesians, that in Christ Jesus and the redemptive grace of the triune God, believers experience now the inauguration of the new covenant and will dwell with him in unified peace in an incorruptible new resurrection existence. As he dwells in incorruptibility, so shall all his people dwell together evermore. I think what Bao is saying is that this at the end is pushing us into the future, revealing that the answers that Christianity gives to the great questions of life have value, not only for the present, but also for the future. Who are you? You are in Christ through the work of the eternal God and you will be in him for all eternity. Where do you belong? 
You belong in the community of God's people who will dwell in God's kingdom forevermore where every tribe and tongue and people and nation will worship him together. And why are you here? You're here for the same reason that you will be there in the new Jerusalem to live and walk in holiness and unity for the glory of God. Of course, we know if we have hope only for this life, we are to be most pitied. But the gospel answers the questions of our eternal souls and gives us peace now and peace for all time. You know, I wonder maybe God might be using these simple questions to open your eyes to the beauty of the gospel, to see the wonderful gift of peace and love and faith and grace that is found as we turn from sin and as we trust in Christ. And so I'd invite you to do just that, to turn from sin and to find in Jesus the answers that your soul is seeking. But maybe you are a Christian And here at the end of this series, the Holy Spirit's sort of bringing everything together and inviting you to once again to find your identity, to find your your community, to find your purpose in Jesus. Because ultimately, it's not Ephesians that is the answer key to all of life. It's Jesus. Jesus, the Savior that this book proclaims, he's the one that provides the answers we're looking for. What a simple and rich book this is. You could read it in 20 minutes, but I don't think in our entire lifetimes we can digest all of the truth that is in it. And so as as we close our series in this book, my hope is that it's an invitation to continue to go deeper into its realities until the day that all of our questions are answered and faith becomes sight. But until that day, let's live as a new people so that we might experience a new unity and walk in a new way, all to the praise of God's glorious grace that has been given freely to us in Christ. Let's take a moment of silence, and then I will pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. You have given us an identity that is rooted in him. You've given us a community that is grounded in the unity that you've provided through him. You've given us a purpose that we know why we are here, that we are here to live lives of unity and holiness to the praise of your grace. Lord, would you shape us more into the image of Christ who did all of this perfectly? who knew exactly who he was, who came seeking his own sheep and, and knew who belonged to him, who, who walked in perfect holiness and perfect unity with you and perfect love towards all people. Lord, would you help us to learn from Ephesians, but ultimately that we would be following Christ. We give you thanks for our time in this great book. Thank you for your, your grace again to, to not leave us without a witness, but to, to help us to know how we can live in this world and find the joy and the, the satisfaction that you promised for us and that awaits us in the new kingdom. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.